0: Please be seated. And please do turn in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, and we will read verses 1 to 10. And just as you're turning there, let me uh, say what a joy it is to be worshiping with you all this evening, and I do extend greetings and love from your brothers and sisters at Grace Baptist Church, Uh, and I know that you would wish the same to them. Let's hear from God's word from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word that came to the centurion, that he heard and that he believed to the physical saving of the servant's life, but ultimately to his own eternal salvation. Lord, we pray that as your word comes to us this evening, that we might be those who receive your word. Uh, Lay it up in our hearts, receive it in faith, and practice it in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, up until this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has openly been teaching that he is the Messiah, the one promised in Isaiah to declare the the year of the Lord's favor, to announce liberty to the captives, uh, sight to the blind and to bring the forgiveness of sins that only God can bring. But Jesus has received two very different responses to his message and to his person. Some have responded to Jesus with anger, uh, even accusing him of blasphemy, finding his message offensive in Nazareth. The synagogue there tried to take him and throw him off a cliff, trying to murder him. Or you might think of the Pharisees, how they are constantly scheming as to, to how they might trip him up and how they've been accusing him of all sorts of things like gluttony and drunkenness and Sabbath breaking, none of which, of course, he is guilty of. Even Satan himself has responded to Jesus coming into this world by trying to tempt him to sin trying to cause him to stumble so that he would be insufficient as the obedient son of God. And this response of of doubt and anger and rejection and hostility is the response of those who belong to this dying age. But in the early chapters of Luke's Gospel, we also see another kind of response. The response of faith. Think of how the baby John leapt in his mother's womb as the, the pregnant Mary approached his mother. Or how Mary herself stored up these things in her heart. All the things about her miraculous conception and the birth of her special son. We've also seen responses of faith to Jesus' adult ministry. Like Simon and Levi, the disciples, leaving their old ways of sin and repenting and following Jesus. Leaving all things and following their new Lord. Or the case of the leper who was healed because of his faith. Faith is the right response to the Savior, to the one who announces, the one who is the the jubilee of God's people, the one who releases us from the captivity of Satan, sin, and death. Faith is that right response. Boys and girls, you know what faith is, don't you? Our catechism asks, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And it answers... Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. In other words, faith looks to Jesus. Faith rests in Jesus. Faith believes that message of the gospel as it comes to us, as it's preached to us from outside of ourselves, from another. And faith rests in that. And faith isn't a work. You know, faith doesn't make us worthy of salvation. It doesn't make us worthy of his love. But rather, as our catechism says, it is a, a saving grace. It's a, it's a gift that God gives us by which we receive from him salvation. And it's this saving faith that really is the focus of uh, Luke in his gospel in chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. This faith is something we see here um, and, and we find it in the most unlikely of places. We just read about some centurions and some guys who, who beat up the apostle. Well, here we find faith in no less than a centurion. And this great faith of the centurion, which Jesus commends to us, is instructive for us as it shows us, so shows us the kind of faith we are to have as we rest and receive Christ as he comes to us in the gospel. Our points this evening are as follows. First, the context of this great faith. And secondly, the contrast to this great faith. And then third, the commendation of great faith. Well, first, there's the context of this great faith. Now, the events of our passage this evening take place just after uh, chapter 6, in which Jesus has spent most of the chapter... Having come down the mountain, having communed with God, having chosen his disciples, uh, he now teaches the crowds uh, throughout chapter 6. So this happens just on, the, on the, the tail end of that. He leaves the mountain and he goes to Capernaum. And immediately, Luke introduces us to a centurion who is living in Capernaum. Now, centurions were military officers in the, the Roman army. At this time, at least, a centuria was typically composed of 80 men. So he's a commander of about 80 men. Uh, He's also a very well-paid man. Uh, One commentary I read said that centurions were paid about 15 times more than their their underlings, than the the regular foot soldiers. So he's uh, no doubt a, a wealthy man. He's also a very important man. It was his job to keep the peace there in Capernaum and to impose the will and the might of Rome there Uh, And for that reason, the uh, centurions typically were not popular men, uh, as they were known for being cruel and harsh to the local populace. The centurion really was the the face of Roman imperialism and oppression uh, to the local people. But there's more to this centurion than meets the eye. For we're told in verse 2, he had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now, This centurion no doubt had many servants and slaves who, who, who worked for him, but he has one in particular who is sick and at the point of death. Luke stresses for us that this servant's life, this slave's life, is, is hanging by a thread. And in the ancient world, if, if that was your case, if you were uh, very sick, uh, that's, you, you were as good as dead. You know, There was no... Uh, ambulance to to take you off to the the best of medical practitioners. Uh, It was uh, very much a a hopeless kind of a situation. And in the ancient world, uh, masters were typically, uh, they were were known to be uh, horrendously cruel to their slaves. Slaves had no legal rights. They were not considered people. They were considered things or tools rather than, than being persons. But this centurion, As we look at him, he shows a great level of care for his sick slave. Luke tells us he was highly valued by him. Now, this language is a little bit vague. It could refer to the fact that this servant was very useful to the centurion. But it could also tell us more than that. It could also signify that the centurion had an affection and he had a care for this man. I think uh, that is the case here. Now, being uh, an army officer... This centurion, no doubt, was a, a keen problem solver. He was used to being faced with difficult challenges and problems to which he had to apply his, uh, his resources to achieve the right outcome. But here, he is in a situation that he cannot fix. Surely, the centurion at this point has tried everything to save his sick servant. He's tried the local town doctor. He's tried the home remedies that, that people have suggested to him and nothing will work. No amount of money, no amount of power or influence that this man wields can do a thing to change the situation that he is in. Nothing can save his dying servant. Most of us know something of what that's like. To be in a situation that you desperately, desperately want changed or fixed. A problem you need solved, and there's nothing you can do about it. Some of us have been in those situations. And all of us, through inner lives, will at some point face this very kind of trial. Well, it may be a medical problem. When the doctors tell you that there is nothing they can do for, for the person you love, there are no more remedies, there are no more surgeries that can fix this, and there's nothing that you can do. Or it could be a financial difficulty where someone you love has been brought deep into debt, that seems uh, insurmountable. Or it could be a family member, a son, a daughter, uh, maybe a close friend, and they've walked away from the faith. And no matter how hard you've, you've tried to convince them, no, no matter how much you've, you've cried with them, you've, you've, pl- you've pleaded with them, you cannot bring them back. You've reminded them of the things they once confessed as true. But no matter what you do, You're powerless to change the situation. What can you do when you've tried everything and there's nothing else you can do for the person you love? Well, the only thing you can do is to do what the centurion did and call out to Jesus, to go to the one who is not only full of compassion, but also the one who is able to help, to save Luke tells us in verse 3 that when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. The centurion had heard about Jesus. What had he heard about Jesus? Well, perhaps he had heard Jesus' sermon by the mount and all that he had said about those who are part of Christ's kingdom and how we live as kingdom citizens. Well, since he's a centurion in Capernaum, surely he had heard of All of Jesus' miracles, uh, miracles of of healing, saving uh, Simon's mother-in-law, casting out demons, healing the sick, performing miracles with the fish, forgiving men and women and boys and girls of their sin. He had heard the gospel of Jesus, that one had come to save us from our sins, to save us from our oppressors, Satan, sin, and death. He believed the gospel that he heard. And so in his desperation, he calls upon the Lord in faith. And so this is the context of his, uh, of, of his great faith in which he calls upon, calls upon the Lord. And it teaches us that we too can call upon the Lord in our trials. So there's a, the context of the centurion's great faith. But then secondly, we see the contrast to great faith. Luke in this section, sets up a a deliberate contrast between the the great faith of the centurion and then whatever it is that the Jewish elders are supposed to have. So the the centurion needs Jesus to help him. He's heard that Jesus is a savior. uh, And so he asks these elders of the Jews to go to Jesus on his behalf. Well, these elders of the Jews were probably religious leaders within Capernaum. They might have also functioned as civil leaders in the community. And perhaps because he is a Gentile, he thinks that it's, it's more appropriate or it's more fitting that these Jews go on his behalf to speak to Jesus rather than him going uh, himself. That's probably what's going on here. And verse 4 tells us that they go willingly on his behalf and they plead with Jesus Earnestly. So they're not there just kind of delivering a message. No, they're going there and they're, they're, they're pleading with Jesus uh, earnestly. Uh, but notice how they earnestly plead. They say, he is worthy to have you do this for him. So they're pleading the centurion's worth. He's worthy, Jesus. He deserves your help. Well, why does he deserve Jesus' help? Well, they give two reasons. Verse 5, For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us, our synagogue. So the first reason why he deserves Jesus' help, why he's worthy of Jesus' help, is because he loves our nation. In other words, Jesus, I know, okay, he's a centurion, but he's not like all those other centurions. Uh, You know, yeah, the the typical centurions who, who are thugs and who... Beat us up and treat us horribly. No, he's not like that. He's he's good to us, and you know Jesus that those who are good to us, we are good to them. So Jesus, you must be good to him. Well, the second reason is because he has built a synagogue. Synagogues were uh, places of public worship that were scattered throughout Israel. Uh, They were not like the temple, so there weren't sacrifices there. They didn't have a tabernacle, or or, 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 sorry, they didn't have the ark of the covenant or, or anything like that, or uh, the, the, of the other trappings of, of the temple. Um, rather, they, were, they held services there, perhaps not too unlike our own, where uh, believers read the word and prayed the word, and the word was, was, was uh, expounded. And so this centurion had built a synagogue for the, the Jews in the town of Capernaum. Well, this act of generosity certainly is a testimony to the man's faith. It may indicate that he is a true believer of Yahweh. Uh, The Romans typically were not kind to those under them, um, and the Jews typically hated the Romans in response. But this centurion is very different. He bankrolls uh, this this public religious building. And so on this basis, they say, he is worthy of your help. You must help him. He is a good guy. Look at all that he's done for us. So the elders are, are pleading for Jesus' help, but in a way that makes Jesus kind of morally obliged to help, almost as if, well, it would be wrong if Jesus didn't help at this point. They're not asking for grace. Rather, they're saying that the centurion has earned Jesus' favor. Boys and girls, is this how we pray to God? Uh, When you listen to your, your elders, your pastors pray, when you hear your parents pray, when you pray, is this... our prayers sound like? Dear Lord, because I have been such a good person, therefore I am worthy. I deserve your blessing. You must do this for me. I've earned it. That doesn't quite sound right, does it? Uh, No, this this is not how we should pray to the Lord. Uh, And so if the centurion is a positive example for us to follow in the story, these Jewish elders are clearly a negative example to be avoided. These Jewish elders are not thinking in terms of grace. They're thinking in terms of merit. Merit means to, to earn something. If you've, if you've merited something, you've, you've worked for it. Now you've earned it. You deserve to have it. It's really the opposite of grace. And they believe that this centurion has done enough good things for them to merit God's favor, to merit Jesus' help here if we're honest with ourselves, we can all, at times, slip into this kind of thinking. Even if we don't write out, outright use the word merit in our prayers, we can often assume it. Whenever we think or we pray, Lord, I've been so faithful to you. I go to church every Sunday. Or, or, or even, I resisted that temptation. That took so much effort on my part. Now, how could you let this trial happen to me? I don't deserve it. Or any time we pray, look at what I've done for you. I've made such sacrifices in the workplace. I'm ridiculed for my faith. Couldn't you at least give me this thing I've prayed for? This spouse I've prayed for? These grades I've, I've worked for? This promotion that I, I need? The kids that I've asked for? This is where we need to be careful, loved ones. Because we tend, we tend to exalt ourselves. If not with our words, well, then in our hearts and in our minds. We think that we're worthy. We think we've done something to deserve better circumstances than what we're in at the moment. And we think that God is the one who owes us better. That he shortchanged us. And we pray as if he owes us something. And we fail to realize that God owes us nothing at all. And we owe him everything. Every breath that we take is a gift given to us by him, by our creator. And not only have we not earned blessing, what we have earned is judgment. You see, apart from Christ, we stand before God as unworthy sinners. And even our greatest works, the most spectacular things that we think we've done, and we pat ourselves on the shoulder after we do them. Well, the Bible says that those are like filthy, stinking rags. Paul likens them to a pile of dung. Oh, in coming to Christ, we must forsake and lay aside all that we have done and counted as loss compared to Christ. Based on your works, what does God owe you? Does he owe you salvation? Does he owe you paradise? Does he owe you health or wealth or prosperity? What does he owe you? Well, the clear answer of Scripture is that the only thing your works have earned is death. As Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned. And if if God were to deal with us based on what we're worth on what we deserve on what he owes us, well, what we're owed is death. It is his wrath against sin. That is getting what we deserve. That would be us being treated fairly by God. And that's what the Jewish elders fail to see. They fail to see the holiness of God. They fail to see their own sin as sinners before a holy God. And therefore they fail to understand who Jesus is and the message of grace that he brings to fallen sinners like us. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that God not only humbles the proud, he also exalts the humble. It is precisely when we see our own unworthiness that we have been prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive Christ in the gospel. And the gospel is that Christ did not die for a worthy people, but for an unworthy people. As Paul writes in Romans 5, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died, not for a worthy people, but for an unworthy people, for sinners, for those who deserve wrath. And instead, because of Christ, he shows us grace. That's what makes grace so amazing. And so, dear friends, go to Christ in humility. Go to him, conscious of your own unworthiness. Go to him with the empty hand of faith. Have only in your hand... His rich and precious promise that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, in contrast to the the works righteousness of these Jewish elders, we see the great faith that Jesus commends. And that's our third point, the commendation of great faith. There are only two times in Jesus' life at which he is astounded. His breath is taken away. He is amazed. And this is one of them. And so let's consider then why this faith of the centurion astounds Jesus and why he turns to the crowd and says, you need to be like this. This is a commendable faith. Well, where we are in the story Uh, The elders have come to Jesus. They've said, based on the centurion's worth, you must come to him. And Jesus graciously, despite the elders' bad theology, Jesus graciously goes with them, and he goes to the centurion's house. Now, it's difficult to know what what, what exactly is happening here. Um, Perhaps the centurion is looking out his window, and he sees this crowd of people coming, and he realizes that the elders sent the wrong message or something like that. We don't know exactly why, but the centurion decides to send a second group, uh, a second group of messengers, and their message is very different from that of the Jewish elders. Look at what the second group say in verse 6. When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Well, do you notice the difference between the Jewish elders and the the friends? The elders spoke in the third person. In other words, they're speaking about the centurion. So their words are not reflective of what the centurion himself is, is expressing or wants expressed. But notice how the friends deliver the message in the first person. I am not worthy. In other words, the friends are accurately conveying the heart and the thoughts of the centurion to Jesus. And his words are very different from those of the elders. The elders said, Jesus, you must come and help. He's worthy. He deserves it. Look at all he's done. But the centurion says the exact opposite. He says, I am not worthy. I'm unworthy. It's almost as if he's saying, I don't know what they said to you, but but don't believe them. Don't listen to them. I'm not worthy. I do not deserve you even to enter into my house. The centurion has a right view of himself. He's unworthy. He approaches Christ on the basis of grace, not on merit or law-keeping. And he has a right view of Jesus. Notice how he calls him Lord, Kyrie in the Greek specifically, he says that he is unworthy to have Jesus come into his house. It may be here that the centurion uh, recognizes the distinction at that time between Jew and Gentile. You know, this is still under the the old covenant that they're operating under. And so he recognizes there's there's a distinction that God has laid out in the old covenant. uh, And so he doesn't want Jesus to come and perhaps be defiled in his house. And yet, this does not stop him. From asking Jesus for help. He says, don't come here, but say the word and let my servant be healed. He knows that Jesus, by the power of his word, is able to heal his servant. The centurion then gives an illustration demonstrating his, his faith in Jesus' power and authority. Verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority. With soldiers under me, and I say, Go to one, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Well, as a military man, he certainly knew what it was to have subordinates and those under his authority. He would give orders and command his soldiers to do this thing or that thing, and he would achieve results by what he called them to do. His his orders had power, they had weight, they had authority. And it isn't that the, 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 uh, the centurion is saying, see, we're kind of the same, you, you know, you, you're a leader, I'm a leader. No, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if, if me, a, a puny centurion, if I'm able to accomplish things by my word, how much more, Jesus, do you have the authority to enact what you will and to, to save and to heal my servant? You, Jesus, have such significant, weighty uh, power and authority. To do this. Luke tells us that when Jesus heard these things he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him he said I tell you not even in Israel have I found such faith and when those who had been sent returned to the house they found the servant well well Jesus response initially is, is one of surprise it's amazement here, Jesus has been met by these Jewish religious leaders, these you know, theologically trained seminary grads in Israel, and they have no understanding of the gospel. And here is this Roman centurion Gentile, and he has a better grasp of the gospel than they do. And he is amazed, and he says, I've never seen such faith in Israel. And Jesus responds by graciously healing his servant. He answers his request positively. And then Jesus turns to the crowds around him and he calls them to the same faith. He commends the faith of the centurion to his disciples. Well, what is it that, that marks the centurion's faith? What, what, what is it that makes his faith so astounding to Jesus and commendable to us? Well, first... As we've already seen, his faith is a faith marked by humility. He sees his sin. He sees his own unworthiness. He approaches Christ, not based on his merit or his works or his own righteousness, but solely on who Jesus is and his mercy. This is the faith Jesus commends to us. The second thing that marks the centurion's faith is that it is a faith rooted in the word of God. If you think back, if you can remember to maybe your, your own reading of Luke or your own knowledge of, of the Gospels, what, what is the constant call of the Jews and even of Satan? Well, it's this. It's show us your power. We don't believe you. Prove to us that you are who you say you are because we don't believe your word. We want signs. We want miracles. Seeing is believing after all. The unbelieving, doubting, dark world wants to see before they're willing to believe. And that isn't faith. Now certainly Jesus has performed many miracles uh, to verify His message, and so miracles do obviously have their place in, in Jesus' ministry. But the miracles are always <clears throat> excuse me they're always secondary to, to the message which reveals Jesus' person and the way of salvation. Miracles are always secondary to what he declares about himself. And this is the the kind of faith that the centurion had. The centurion, you'll notice, never saw Jesus. He never touched his wounds. He never, I mean, he didn't have wounds at this point, but you know what I mean. He never saw him with his eyes. He never uh, watched him perform miracles. Rather, his faith was grounded firmly in the word of Christ that he had heard so that he didn't need the the, the sight and the ceremony of these miracles that Jesus has already performed to trust in him. He knew Jesus' word alone was sufficient. And this is the faith that Jesus commends to us. As Jesus says to Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is the reason his faith is commended to us. Because we are in many ways like this Gentile Roman centurion. His experience is ours. Just like the centurion, we have not laid our eyes physically upon Christ. We have not seen him. We have not observed his miracles We did not touch his wounds. But also, like the centurion, we have not been left without a testimony, without a witness. We also have received the word of Jesus. We have heard about Jesus. And like the centurion, then, we have a word, a content, a gospel, a a truth that grounds our faith. That's the very reason why Luke wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Luke is writing to a people just like us, who though we have not seen Jesus, we believe in him. And what we do have is the testimony of the faith, uh, that faith once delivered to us. And through this, our faith is grounded and it is built up. The good news of this passage is that you have this very same word of Christ to ground your faith. And it is a living word. Christ has not stopped speaking from the time of his earthly ministry, but he continues to speak through his word. The same voice that spoke in creation, uh, separating light from darkness, he continues to speak, calling sinners from the kingdom of God of darkness and hell into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. It is by the hearing of the word that the Spirit works, creating faith in us. You know, Christ does not uh, save us through our sight. No, he saves us, as Paul says in Romans 10, through what we hear, through hearing the voice of Christ and believing it and trusting it. And it is by continually listening to His Word, that the Spirit continually grows us in faith. He nourishes our faith. He builds us up. It's one of the reasons why our worship service in our Reformed tradition has the Word central to all that we do. Yes, singing is important. Yes, praying is important. They're all important, and they all have their place in the worship service. But the preached Word is central because of the way that Christ has promised to bless the preached Word and how He promises to speak Himself through the faithful and sound preaching of his word. And so as we gather to hear his word proclaimed, he speaks to us. He ministers to us. He communicates grace to us by the Holy Spirit. By his word, he convicts us of sin. By his word, he assures us that we have been forgiven. By his word, he points us in the way of repentance and new obedience by his word, he comforts our griefs. By his word, he gives us hope for the future. All that we need for life and godliness, he gives us through the word. We have the same word of Christ that the centurion had, even in greater measure. Our present experience is one of suffering rather than glory. It is one of faith and not sight. But as the apostle Peter declares though you have not seen him you love him though you do not see him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls and so beloved imitate the faith of the centurion the kind of faith that Jesus commends and delights in the kind of faith that he will reward with sight a faith that looks away from self and unto Christ, a faith that counts all as loss compared to his surpassing worth, a faith that rests and trusts in the word of Christ. And by faith, the Spirit will preserve you in Christ until the day when your faith shall become sight and you will see with your own eyes him whom you have loved and believed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this rich gift of faith, a faith that you have given us that we might exercise and lay hold of Christ as he is extended to us in the gospel. Lord, help us to receive even your word this evening by faith so that we might lay it up in our hearts and love your word and believe it and practice it in our lives. Help us, Lord, to not only be hearers of your word, but doers also. And Lord, may you hasten the day in which our faith shall be sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a moment.